Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And in this episode, I'll be taking a look at the second half of W.E.B. Du Bois's wonderful collection of essays, The Souls of Black Folk. This is one of my favorite works of all American writing, um, probably my favorite work by an uh, African-American writer. Certainly, it's one of my favorite nonfiction works of, of the 20th century. It was written in 1903, and it's Du Bois's first major work. He had previously published his PhD dissertation on the suppression of the African slave trade. And if you read that, you don't really know that he has this beautiful work, The Souls of Black Folk, in him. It's very technical. It's very much a PhD dissertation. And I, I have talked about that. I, I had two episodes before where I looked at this work. It's relevant, and there's themes that certainly Du Bois will carry with him throughout his life on the importance of of political struggle and moral development and the importance of of having law on your side in a way and using law, but also the weakness of law. These are these are themes that are gonna be with him throughout his writing. But you don't really notice yet the the beauty of his prose and and kind of the broadness of his vision, I think. I, I think that's one thing that really touches you with the souls of black folk. It's it's not just about one thing. Yeah, it has an overarching theme, and that overarching theme is the veil and double consciousness. The idea that black Americans must always look at themselves through the way white America looks at them, because it's white America that defines the discourse and the terms of the debate, right? He's writing at a point in which Jim Crow has been established firmly in law and in policy and in ideology throughout the post-Reconstruction South. It's at a time when the, the era of Reconstruction is remembered, but it's growing increasingly distant, especially from younger people. And white supremacy has is increasingly codified. Yeah, Reconstruction, I guess we see, fails in 1876 with the removal of troops from the South. But it would still take 20 years for white supremacy to firmly establish itself in in the South. Uh, and when I looked at the series, my series on W uh, Charles W. Chestnut, I talked about a book, The Mayor of Tradition. That's about a race riot in the 1880s. Sorry, in the 1890s, in 1898, the Wilmington race riot, which was a response to a Republican populist government dominated by black people in Wilmington, North Carolina. So disfranchisement and Jim Crow had not been fully established throughout the South really until the early decades of the early decade of the 20th century. You know, we sometimes kind of condense American history too much here. And we say there's the Civil War, there's Reconstruction, and then there's there's Jim Crow. And it really didn't work that way. There was a period of transition to this. And Du Bois is responding to that, but he's also responding to global trends. And this is something that'll come clear in some of his later writing and in Black Reconstruction in America. But that he's he understands that there's these are 
global questions, then when he says the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, he doesn't just mean this for the United States. He does mean this for the world. And he's and he does see the color line increasingly as a global phenomenon. So it's important for that. And then there's just this diversity of topics he explores. He explores black leadership. He explores the experience of, of peasant in the, in, the, in the New South and the people who have been left behind. He looks at the upwardly mobile middle class African-Americans. He looks at professionalism. He looks at, at higher education. He looks at history. He's got some essays here on history. He's got one work of fiction in here. He's got a personal memoir about the short life of his son who died in infancy. There's essays here about black culture and the contribution of black people to American culture. So it's a very rich work. And it's not very long. You can pretty much read it in, in a couple sittings if you've set your mind to it. But it's so fascinatingly rich and it's something you can come back to again and again and every time I read it I find new things to love about this work it's it's just brilliant so I can't recommend this work enough um, I've already talked about the first half of it and I've given you some introduction to the work you know in my previous episode so I'm not going to rehash that old ground and I'm just going to jump ahead I think I left off in chapter six so I'm going to jump into chapter seven and start giving my comments about um, this work well, the, the second half of it. So chapter seven is called Of the Black Belt. And this is coming off of three or four chapters in which, in various degrees, Du Bois was interested in the question of higher education and the training of professional class and an intellectual class among African-Americans. Um, I think he wrote a chapter on Booker T. Washington and his strategy, and then he responds with chapters on, on teachers and his own experience as a teacher, and then the need for higher education in a chapter called Of the Training of Black Men. And then he's got another chapter called On the Wings of Atalanta, where he warns against taking too much of a materialistic response to progress. And I think this is a lesson uh, we can still learn from. I, I think we still too much tie growth or, or see progress in terms of economic growth and material progress rather than seeing it really in the progress and evolution of our social relations and our, in our communities. But he goes from this in chapter seven to really talk about the poorest and the most neglected and the most exploited of Southern blacks. And that is the, the peasant, what he openly calls the peasant class. I'm, I'm not sure they would have identified themselves as peasants, but Du Bois does essentially call them peasants here. And these are the cotton farmers of the South tied into systems of debt peonage, of sharecropping, of the crop lean system and all the other ways in which southern farmers particularly black farmers were really tied to very exploitative labor conditions they might have they might be tenants some of them might even own a little bit of land but by and large they are trapped in systems of debt and this keeps them basically as the status of peasants so where does he tell this story well he tells it in albany georgia uh, in the in the heart of the black belt in georgia it's 200 miles south of atlanta and what we have here is essentially a sociological analysis of conditions in one village. And at times he's very objective and at times he's very scientific. He's preventing the numbers, how much is owned, how much is debt, what percentage of families reduce their debt each year. And so we get these, these kinds of numbers. But he also gives the broader social class analysis here. And he gives the emotional punch to it as well, where he really understand what it would have been like to be one of these these peasants and he's writing to a national audience who 
probably doesn't see the connection between this extreme poverty and exploitation and the clothes they wear every day. And he's also responding in a way to whites in the North who maybe said, well, why doesn't the South just get, get off cotton? Or why don't Southern blacks get off cotton? Why are they tied to that? And, and, and Du Bois shows that there's really power relations here that trap them into these cycles of ecological devastation, of debt, of, you know, because the whole system is tied to this one product of cotton. And this is trapping a whole generation of, of black farmers. And as always, we get his beautiful um, writing that's politically within the beauty of this prose there's this political punch he's always hiding there you know it's i i, and I think the left and certainly du bois is of of the political left need this kind of writing from time to time because you know the, the academic scholarly approach to class doesn't really carry the same weight as, as works like this do um quote how curious a land is this, how full of untold story of tragedy and laughter and the rich legacy of human life shadowed with the tragic past and big with future promise. This is the Black Belt of Georgia. Doherty County is the west end of the Black Belt and men once called it the Egypt of the Confederacy. It's full of historic interest. First there is the swamp to the west where the Chickasawatchee uh, flows sullenly southward. The shadow of an old plantation lies in its edge forlorn and dark. Then comes the pool, pendant gray moss and brackish waters appear, and forests filled with wild wildflower fowl. In one place the wood is on fire, smoldering in dull red anger, but nobody minds. Then the swamp grows beautiful, a raised road, built by chain negro convicts, dips down into it and flows away, walled and almost covered into in living green. Spreading trees spring from a prodigal luxuriance of undergrowth. Great dark green shadows fade into the black background until all is one mass of tangled semi-tropical foliage, marvelous in its weird, savage splendor. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a hard chapter to summarize because it is is so rich. He talks about convict labor here and, and how uh, the use of the convict labor system has helped sustain the drudgery of this of this what he calls the peasant class now each chapter of the souls of black folk begins with a, a selection of poetry often from the western tradition broadly um, which is part of du bois's agenda here of course is to insist that african americans are part of the western tradition and have as much right to it as as white americans do he does have pan-african elements and these come off more and more in his later works but he's He's kind of insisting on both traditions, actually, uh, by the end of his career. Uh, kind of a more global, diasporatic view of the black experience. But then, he, then so he'll pair this work of, of verse with music. And one of the, what he calls the sorrow songs or plantation music or what we may call spirituals. And this one is a few notes of bright sparkles in the churchyard. So as I said in my last episode, I, I didn't know a lot of these these this music, and I actually looked up what I could, and I couldn't find YouTube versions of, of all of the all of this music, but I found some of it, and some of it there's new recordings, some of it were performances by by contemporaries. So, anyways, that's that. If you know that one and you know the connection to the themes of this chapter, uh, I'd love to know. I I'm not sure. Sometimes the connection is is more obvious. Sometimes it's a little bit looser and maybe more more, more emotional in Du Bois's mind. 
So that's it. So th this is just the chapter you go to if you want to understand Du Bois's point of view of of the black underclass, the peasant underclass in in the New South. And I think his main point is you need to understand this community and where these people come from to understand why they are trapped. And this kind of northern liberal approach of, you know, why don't they just leave? It, it doesn't really explain the depths of exploitation that are really rooted into into the system they lived in. And this theme is taken up more in Chapter 8 of The Quest of the Golden Fleece, which essentially is a sequel to uh, um, of the Black Belt. But it takes on more and more this question of the relationship between this exploited underclass, the, the, the poor black peasant, with the overall narrative of the time of progress. And he kind of takes on directly this liberal line of, of why don't they just leave? Why don't they escape? Why don't they reform? Why don't they develop a new ways? So why is it, in Du Bois's point of view, then why is it that the black belt is stuck? Why can't it be part of this narrative of progress? And I think he gives a fairly compelling economic and social economic explanation and that it comes down to exploitation, that these people are prisoners and that, that asking them to escape their conditions is, is, is like asking a, a prisoner to just escape from jail. Yeah, it may happen once in a while, but for the large majority, it's not going to happen. And there's all sorts of social and economic forces that work trapping this population. So this quest for the Golden Fleece, again, we have another reference to Greek mythology, as we did in the chapter on the wings of Atalanta. And it's here it's presented more as a, as a myth that's being chased, right? Something that really can't be achieved. And here's how he puts it. Have you ever seen a cotton field white with the harvest, its golden fleece hovering above the black earth like a silverly cloud edged with dark green, its bold white signals waving forth like foam billows from Cal Cal Carolina to Texas across the black and human sea? I've sometimes half suspected that here the winged ram Crimales left the fleece after which Jason and his Argonauts went vaguely wandering into the shadowy east 3,000 years ago. And certainly one might frame a pretty and not far-fetched analogy of witchery and dragon's teeth and blood and armed men between the ancient and modern quest of the Golden Fleece and the Black Sea. End quote. And now, so what is the Golden Fleece here? Well, it's both the symbol of wealth, right? Gold. But the fleece is, of course, the metaphor for cotton. And... The, the argument here, in part, is in addition to these e economic forces that are tying them to the land, there's this ideology of cotton as the way to escape poverty. And that's, that's the ideology of the South all the way back to before the Civil War, of course. For over a century, almost a century at this point, cotton has been the path to prosperity in the South. And it's not surprising, therefore, then that freedmen embrace cotton and embrace the land, embrace agriculture as a way to escape, because that's, of course, how the planter class got rich in the pre-Civil War period. In fact, the New South was addicted to cotton, not just as producers, but as the producing of the cotton, but as manufacturers, because one of the big growth industries in the New South was the cotton mills. And he talks about those as well here. And there's a whole generation of new wealth in the South tied to the other end of cotton manufacturing. It's not all about sending it to Massachusetts. Now it, it really becomes part of the Southern economy in a much more integrated way in the post-Civil War era. And then, of course, the great tragedy of 
southern the southern economy at the time is that in the midst of such wealth is poverty and these devastated and destroyed individuals tied in debt tied in poverty and exploited day in and day out by an entire system an entire superstructure that's designed to do that it's above and beyond race here because there's many poor whites who are tied into the same these same cycles and the same systems but it falls particularly hard on black people because alongside all of that of course is jim crow and racism and white supremacy and racial violence and and all that and du bois certainly wants to make a defense of the black laborer by making the case that it's not about laziness it's not about lack of intelligence it's actually about them doing the right thing about striving for the right thing about striving to own land about striving to be autonomous about striving to get out of debt and these become chains in their own the trapping them to to the land the effort to escape is there it's, it's very much part of what drives them but again the the social system and the economic bonds are so tight that they are are stuck so the quest for the golden fleece really does become myth and it's actually in this chapter we get much more of the the straight-up sociological analysis than we do in of the black belt but these two chapters are sort of tied together so of the black belt and of the quest for the golden fleece the opening music in this one is children you may be called on I don't know what that's referring to exactly. Maybe the kind of service to the to the greater system of of cotton. A commodity that a, I mean, really, if you want to take it this look at this at a Marxist point of view, he's in a sense talking about commodity fetishism here. You know, the Marxist idea of commodity fetishism is that when you see a product, maybe it's a cotton T-shirt on the shelf, and you see a price tag on it, and you associate this this money in your pocket with it and you exchange the money for this cotton shirt and then you take it home and you wear it right what's you're not privy to in all this is the social relations that went into making the shirt right so we're we're aloof we're alienated from forces of production the worker is alienated from what he produces by the wage labor system and the consumer is alienated from what went into making the commodity so it just becomes a product that's bought you're, you don't know anything about how the cotton was produced, where it was produced. It could have been on the moon for all you care, right? And in a sense, Du Bois is, is attacking that straight on by actually studying the social relations in, in Doherty County. There are two really wonderful chapters, by the way, and they should be read by anyone wanting to understand core periphery issues, commodity fetishism, just the way capitalism works in the modern era. The same story could have been told for uh, rubber plantations in Vietnam or in the Congo, uh, diamond mines in South Africa, on and on, right? The, the, we're talking about a really a global system by this point. I think Du Bois knows that very well, but he's focusing on the experience of African-Americans, of course, in this work. In his later works, he's going to have that global perspective much more on the forefront. So next, chapter nine, we have Of the Sons of Master and Man, the opening song opening music is from i'm a Roland. um so this chapter there's actually a lot going on in this chapter it's it's a sense about the relationship between the new south and the old south in terms of of the evolution of race relations the evolution of politics and policies and economy and he's 
basically, this chapter is about the institutions of, of white supremacy and how they evolved and how they're implemented and what they mean. And so, so essentially, this is his chapter on Jim Crow and his chapter on disfranchisement. It's where he talks about the necessity of the vote, maybe most uh, directly. And it's, I guess it's his analysis of the entirety of the legal framework of, of Jim Crow segregation, although there's a lot going on here. It's actually quite a rich chapter thematically. Now, the result of all this for Du Bois, I guess is the main thesis of this chapter, is that the result of this is it really creates this bifurcation in the South and the color line gets harder and it gets framed, relations get framed more in, in terms of struggles for resources and for competition. And you basically get this kind of ideology of racial competition due to the legal and economic realities that were established in the post-Civil War South. And then in the second half of the chapter, he moves into this theme of, of what is the effects of this then on, on black people? So he went from praising the black peasant as an exploited underclass. And perhaps he, I don't want to say he romanticizes it, but he does try to show them as hardworking strugglers trying to move up in the world. But basically locked into systems of exploitation. In The Sons of Master and Man, though, he takes on the question of, of criminal behavior. And he has got a couple points about this. One is that certainly he thinks crime, criminal behavior among blacks in the South is a product of Jim Crow itself and a response to it in a lot of ways. He doesn't think, though, that blacks are overrepresented in Southern crime overall compared to whites, at least not when you take into consideration the economic and and political realities they're facing or they faced. Now, in the context of Black Lives Matter, a contemporary movement trying to address issues of, of criminal justice, there's a lot to learn in this chapter of the Sons of Master and Men because in this chapter he does take on this, the police and he takes on this, the criminal justice system and the convict labor system and the interconnection of all these things. Quote, Moreover, the political status of the Negro in the South is closely connected with the question of Negro crime. There can be no doubt that crime among Negroes has sensibly increased in the last 30 years and that there has appeared in the slums of great cities a distinct criminal class among blacks. In explaining this unfortunate development, we must know two things. One, that the inevitable result of emancipation was to increase crime and criminals. And two, that the police system of the South was primarily designed to control slaves. As for the first point, we must not forget that under a strict slave system, there can scarcely have been such a thing as crime. But when these variously constituted human particles are suddenly thrown broadcast into a sea of life, some swim, some sink, and some hang suspended to be forced up or down by the chance currents of a busy, hurrying world. So great an economic and social revolution as swept the South in 63 meant a weeding out among the Negroes of the incompetence and vicious, the beginnings of the differentiation of social grades. Now, a rising group of people are not lifted bodily from the ground like an inert solid mass, but rather stretch upward like a living plant, with its roots clinging to the mold. The appearance, therefore, of Negro criminal is a phenomenon to be weighted, and while it causes anxiety, it should not occasion surprise. End quote. And then he goes into the criminal justice system and how that uh, affects black life, particularly convict labor and the prisons. And all that, and, the, and the, the, just the racism at the root of the Southern criminal justice system. I wonder about, though, the, about this idea that, that crime couldn't exist in, in slavery. In the sense, they weren't, slaves weren't citizens. They 
didn't have legal rights. So the idea of a black criminal, I guess, doesn't make much sense. He's right about that. And so, of course, you're going to have criminals because you didn't have free citizens before to commit crimes before 1963, before 65, at least. Of course, it's relevant that the 13th Amendment establishes a means of enslaving prisoners. It's slavery is legal under the Constitution, under the 13th Amendment for punishment for crimes. And it doesn't give any guidelines on the severity of those crimes or, you know, how crimes will be defined at the state level. So that was a big loophole that led to the whole um, convict labor system in the South, which was heavily racist and heavily um, used to enforce the color line. That said, though, I imagine all slaves were working against their enslavement at various times in various ways, right? And scholars have written about this day-to-day resistance. But anyways, um, The Sons of Master and Men is a really important chapter because it talks about these issues we're still dealing with and still trying to work our way through and and address. Right? I'm not sure those, those can be addressed without the abolition uh, of the police system and the criminal justice system in some way uh, or rebooting of it or something. But, you know, the, the, you know, we're still facing these questions. So it's important that way. But it's really I think it's a chapter that really focuses on Jim Crow as a whole, as a system. And again, I think Du Bois' strength is that he's able to look at things systemically from many points of view and see all these things as interconnected. It's something Chestnut really couldn't do. Like in the Merrill tradition, you have a lot thrown on the map about the color line, about the psychology of the color line, about racial violence and lynching and the media. And he doesn't like have a general theory of it, though. And I think Du Bois, maybe because of his Marxist sympathies, maybe because of his leftism, is able to create a, an overall theory. So he really sees it as the superstructure. And that's, this is the chapter where he lays it out in most detail. Now, his conclusion is that this this causes conflict and it causes a psychology of conflict and it causes uh, it becomes very difficult to escape, therefore. But he does think there there has to be a way out that comes through a, a mutual reworking of of these hardening lines on either side of the color line. Quote, this is right at the end of the chapter. It's not enough for the Negroes to declare that color prejudice is the sole cause of their social conditions, nor for the white South to reply that their social condition is the main cause of their prejudice. They both act as reciprocal cause and effect, and a change in neither alone will bring upon the desired effect. Both must change. Of neither can improve to any great extent. The Negro cannot stand the present reactionary tendencies and unreasoning drawing of the color line indefinitely without discouragement and retrogression. And the condition of the Negro is ever the excuse for further discrimination. Only by a union of intelligence and sympathy across the color line in this critical period of the Republic shall justice and right triumph. And quote. Now, actually in there, there's a, a backhanded attack on Booker T. Washington again, because Booker T. Washington is saying somehow we need to work up our wealth, work up our skills through education, and then kind of come out as equal citizens some point in the future. And Du Bois is saying you can't. This is the wrong strategy because the very Jim Crow system, the whole system of the South, is deepening these this de- degradation. It's not. It's not going to. You can't work from within the system because the system is designed to harden these lines and to and to create the very re- degradation that Booker T. Washington is struggling against to trying to achieve. He's he's basically confusing cause for effect. And uh, 
I mean, that, that's where, yeah. So this is an important chapter. Um, and then we get to the last five chapters of The Souls of Black Folk, where Du Bois is a little bit more uh, experimental in his approaches. He, he writes five very different essays. They're more about culture and personal experiences. And so I'll be a little bit quicker with these final five, five chapters. The next chapter, chapter 10 of The Faith of the Fathers, starts with the music from Steal Away Home, which is a, a very famous um, plantation song. And this is about religion and the church, the black church in particular. Now, Du Bois, I don't get the sense, is, is a particularly religious person. I don't know if he was a Christian. I doubt it. Um, but he certainly sees the church as an important part of black culture and a, a part of the contribution of black America to the, to the country. Um, so he and he talks about the differentiation between Northern Christians and Southern Christians on racial questions and on the slavery and, he, and slavery. And he goes back to even the abolitionist area er, time when there was kind of distinctions between these experiences. But he he thinks it has to go farther. He thinks that the Black Church has to go a little bit farther in moving. I guess I guess it's moving beyond the kind of the, almost the opiate of the masses kind of idea, this kind of sigh, this depressed sigh about, you know, how do we manage, how do we survive in, in slavery and become a much more political force? This is how he ends the chapter. Quote, but back of this still brewed silently the deep religious feeling of the real Negro heart, the stirring, the unguided might of powerful human souls who have lost the guiding star of their past and are seeking in the great night a new religious ideal. Someday awakening will, will come when the pent-up vigor of 10 million souls will sweep irresistibly towards the goal out of the valley of the shadow of death, where all that makes life worth living, liberty, justice, and right, is marked for white people only. So what he's really calling for is an end of religious fatalism, but he acknowledges that the black contribution to American religion is a bit of fatalism rooted in, in the experience of slavery. So that's, that's that chapter. Uh, chapter 11 is of the passing of the firstborn, and there the, the, the spiritual that leads it off is, I hope my mother will be there. And this, I don't know, it's only five pages or so. I, I just urge you to read it. It's a personal memoir of his about the death of his own son in infancy and his feelings of what it was like to have a son. And he actually has some interesting comments just from a father's point of view of which things I can actually attest to is this oddness you feel. I, I think mothers might have, must have different experiences because mothers have been with this child through the pregnancy for so long. You know, I can't really comment on it myself, but I can comment on this, this feeling you have that there's this, this thing in your house and you look at it and you, you, you love this child, but it's, it's hard to love. Right. And it's like, you have to build that relationship that perhaps mothers had through the pregnancy. I don't really know, but I, when I was reading this and he was talking about how difficult and how odd, maybe not difficult, but how odd it felt to love this, this um, human being that appeared in your house. I, I actually understand that a little bit. Now his main point in this chapter though, is really about um, the anguish that he felt knowing that this child was going to grow up in the veil and in the color line. Now, he had some maybe dream that this could be overcome, but he didn't really think so. So, you know, this child who doesn't know anything, doesn't understand race, doesn't understand the color line, doesn't know he's black. 
is going to grow into someone who faces all these struggles and faces this prejudice and is going to suffer greatly for it. And then when the son dies, um, before he can know these things, he's very um, bittersweet about it. Um, of course, he's heartbroken by by the death, but he also imagines his son actually being able to have his entire existence above the veil in a way. This is how he ends this chapter. If one must have gone, why not I? Why must? Why may I not rest from this restlessness and sleep from this wide waking? Was not the world's alembic time in his young hands? And is not my time waning? Are there so many workers in the vineyard that the fair promise of this little body could lightly be tossed away? The wretched of my race that line the alleys of the nation sit fatherless and unmothered. But love sat beside his cradle, and in the ear wisdom waited to speak. Perhaps now he knows all love, and needs not be needs not be wise. Sleep then, child, sleep till I sleep and waken to a baby voice and a ceaseless patter of little feet above the veil. So, uh, very touching. It's hard to actually read this chapter without wanting to break down and cry. Then we have uh, chapter 12 of Alexander Crummel. Alexander Crummel, the, the spiritual here is Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Um, this chapter, it's, it's, I don't know if it's the weakest. It's the one I feel the least, I guess, to put it, to say it. I, it's, I, I've read this chapter several times and I've never really felt as emotionally tied to it. Maybe it's because it comes after that of the passing of the firstborn and it seems a little bit more banal. It's an interesting contrast, though. He talks about a boy who never grew up knowing race and knowing the color line or dies before knowing the color line. And then he compares this to Alexander Crummel, who was uh, a, a black leader, a minister throughout the 19th century. So he he was born in 1819. Um, he spent some time in England. He got his training in England. He was involved in the anti-slavery movement. He didn't die till 1898. So Du Bois is interested in him is really as a black leader who was on both sides of the experience, of, like on both sides of emancipation, I guess. And he, and not just a little on one side, right? A lot of people, of course, you know, like we think of some leaders like Frederick Douglass as kind of antebellum intellectuals. And yeah, he had a leadership role after the Civil War, but, you know, we don't really focus on that as much. And then, of course, we have Booker T. Washington and New Boys is that new generation. This is kind of a respectful commentary on this figure who has had a much deeper experience and remembered not only like the pre-Civil War slavery for much of his adult life, but actually was kind of born alongside the cotton boom. So he goes back that far. And I think Du Bois laments a little bit that people like Crummel are, are seen as old fogies and not really respected and listened to. And so there's a bit of a eulogy aspect to to this account. And it, it's very respectful and, and touching at times. Um, oh, next we have chapter 13 of The Coming of John. The, the music here is You May Bury Me in the East. If you're interested, so uh, this story. So this is fiction. So it's it's a bit metaphorical because we have two young men named John, and one's white, one's black, and they both pursue an education, and then their lives cross at some point. 
Um, I think the moment they cross is when they both try to go to a theater and, you know, and he's not allowed in, but the white John is allowed in. And they're really meant to be parallel to each other in kind of in manhood, in, in sort of ability. So Du Bois wants to make the point of the arbitrariness of the color line, which opens doors to one person and closes them to another. Okay, so John goes to the north to to study, and then he comes back down and to the south and starts to, he opens up a school and things like that, so he wants to kind of give back to his community. Um, but he's frustrated by the fact that the curriculum he has to teach seems to reinforce racial hierarchy. Um, so, but he tries to work around that and he tries to do what he can to teach young black children in the South about, about the black experience and racism and things like that. Now, white John eventually rapes black John's sister at some point. And again, Du Bois has made this point actually several times in the book where the, you know, the, especially when he's talking about the myth of black criminality, he always makes the point that whites are just as full of, of criminal behavior, right? And, you know, education is not not proof that one is superior morally. Although he does, I think he thinks that, he does say at times though that education does connect to progress. So he might be a bit contradictory here. But anyways, white John eventually rapes black john's sister black john kills white john uh, in vengeance and then john has to flee black john has to flee the south and basically to avoid being lynched so these two characters who are meant to parallel each other early on in the story turn out to be very morally very different and and then their lives really go different ways because of of the color line right and the irony at the end, of course, is that John's going to be lynched, or at least he's set upon to be lynched. And all Black John did was lynch White John for the crime against his sister. So, you know, there's kind of an equivalency there. It's, it's not necessarily saying that Black John was right to, to murder White John, but simply saying that, you know, all he did was lynch uh, White John for a crime that Black people were often accused of before they were lynched. So anyways, that's... Uh, the coming of John. And then, like I said, the only fiction we have in this book. And then we have the final chapter, chapter 14, uh, The Sorrow Songs. And here the music is Lay This Body Down. And this is the only chapter, I think, where the verse actually is from a spiritual as well, from a plantation song. So and usually it was like European verse followed by you know, music from one of these plantation songs. And in this one, he uses both from the black experience. And really, this chapter is about where this music comes from, plantation music. The Sorrow Songs is essentially plantation music, what we sometimes call spiritualists, spirituals. Uh, I don't think he really likes that term, tune. And he just goes through the songs that he already put in the various chapters, giving some of the context and the, the lyrics and a bit of analysis of them, he talks about the evolution of black music and how it kind of became, it went from being something that's sung in the plantation to something performed publicly in public performances after the Civil War. And I, I think he talks about what was that group of singers 
the Fisk, yeah, there were the Fisk Jubilee singers who went around the country uh, performing and popularizing the, these songs. And he goes through them, but he wants to say we, these really need to be studied within the context of slavery and that they are really songs about sorrow and suffering and and various forms of, to of, of the torture of, of the experience of being slaves. Quote, our song, our toil, our cheer and warning have been given to this nation in blood brotherhood. Are these not gifts worthy of giving? Is not this work and striving? Would America have been America without her Negro people? End quote. And that's his kind of conclusion, not only to this chapter, but to this entire book is, and here's the ultimate response to Booker T. Washington, is that there's no need to develop skills to, uh, among the people to prove oneself. I mean, that's good. He, he supports vocational education. He thinks that's, you know, that's a path, a respectable path. But this idea that it's somehow to work our way to citizenship is laughable to him because it's been proven again and again, whether through the contribution of labor, the contribution of suffering, the contribution of, of music and of culture, the contribution to religion, the contribution to ideas, on and on. So it's it's like already earned in Du Bois's mind. And so that's that's it. That's my kind of my summary of of the souls of black folk. It, it'd be almost impossible for me to at this point give a thematic point by point summary because there's so many themes in this book. Um, but I, I'm just going to kind of leave it at that and recommend you read the souls of black folk. Um, really one of the best books of American writing from the 20th century. And with that, I'll, I'll let you go. Um, next up, we're going to read a book that was actually written about 35 years later called uh, Dusk of Dawn, which is partially Du Bois's autobiography, but also another book like Souls of Black Folk in that it's, it's a bunch of essays on different topics, but it's much more overarching as an autobiography. Um, it's it's written on the when World War II was already raging, so he's looking back at forty years from the time he wrote Social Black Folk. So we'll we'll look at it that way. We'll look at what Du Bois says about his own life because I haven't given you a biography of him yet, except in very loose form. But I was holding it off till we look at dusk dusk of dawn, and then we'll talk about what this book means. And it's really important because it really starts to venture into an, a criticism and analysis of empire and of the black diaspora and kind of a global working class. He starts to see these themes he plays with in Souls of Black Folk in a much more global perspective in Dusk of Dawn. And I think that makes it a really important work in kind of Afrocentrist tradition, but also in kind of the global struggle against empire. It's a very interesting work. If you just want to ask a question like, how did people coming into World War II in America, think about freedom, think about what the post-war world might look like. And Du Bois certainly has his say about that as well. So anyways, I, I look forward to talking in my next episode about at least the first half of, half of Dusk of Dawn. So again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, please share your experiences reading The Souls of Black Folk below. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I know there's a lot I missed in this work because it is so rich, but if there's something really important that I didn't talk about that you'd like to uh, share, please please share that with me as well, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to respond. So I'll see you next time when we'll start looking at Du Bois' 1940, I Dusk of Dawn. I'm walking through the moonlight. 
lay this body down.